Hey everybody, how you doing? Welcome back to another episode of the Breaking Bad Show. I'm Chad Bruckner. I'm here in my childhood home. This is where I grew up. It's Easter Sunday, and we're here with the family having a great time. I got my little guy, Marcus. This is my niece, Lena. And just wanted to wish you guys a happy Easter. Today's interview is gonna be an awesome interview. And that's Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman, former Army officer, author, speaker, amazing guy. I read two of his books on combat and on killing and before I ship to Iraq, we're gonna have him on today. And it's a really big honor for us. I'm here with my wife, Kristen. We just wanted to wish you a very happy Easter. You know, there's no greater comeback story in history than when Jesus died for us, killed on great, a Good Friday, and rose again on Easter Sunday. It is the greatest comeback story in the world. So we want to wish you a happy Easter. Really hope you enjoy this interview with Lieutenant Colonel Grossman. Spend time with your family. This is the Breaking Bad Show. Hey everybody, how you doing? Welcome back to another episode of the Breaking Bad Show. I'm Chad Bruckner. I'm Ryan Chartrand. And we're so happy to be with you again for another episode. This thing keeps moving. We're going to keep making content and, and having guests on that really are going to challenge your perspective, get you to think of things from some, something that maybe you didn't think about before. And this is a great episode for Ryan and I. I can speak for myself. I read Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman's On Killing and On Combat years ago as a young infantryman, young infantry leader, then as a police officer. And those books really spoke to me at that time of, of needing some, some further knowledge about what world I'm operating in and how I need to do it the best way I can through a proper mindset. So we are just so honored that Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman is gracious with his presence today. Sir, thank you so much. Welcome to the show. Uh, my pleasure, Welcome to the show, Colonel. Oh, Ryan. Hey, Chad. You know, uh, uh, it's it's uh, uh, an amazing dynamic as I've sat here. I'm 65, uh, in 24 years in the Army, now 25 years doing this. And the whole podcast revolution is one of the neatest and most positive thing that's happened to our civilization. You know, I've been back in 1998. I was on 60 Minutes. I was on 2020, a three-minute soundbite. And a week later, nobody remembered, nobody cared, you know, but now the podcast revolution, you know, I honor you providing deeper information. I honor your listeners who are seeking deeper information. We've broken the, you know, the barricades of, you know, three networks and, uh, you know, one or two uh, newspapers and a couple of national magazines. And if you didn't get on those here, your voice is never heard. You guys have broken that barrier and provided people with a depth of information that, and and a hundred years from now it's entirely possible just like you know we'll read a book a hundred years old a hundred years from now it's entirely possible they'll look at this podcast and see well here's what they were thinking at that time here's here's what the you know the influencers were thinking at that time and, and then you add to it the incredible breakdown of our civilization the explosion of violence the whole law enforcement dynamic that we're in the middle of right now uh, and you guys are, are establishing history and, uh, and I'm, I'm pleased to be on board with you. you know, it's uh, neat stuff across the board. And these are some 
sometimes that badly need uh, need our help. That's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, you're you're so right. I appreciate you saying that because Ryan and I was one of the motivations we came together. Is how can we make a difference? You know, we both hit roadblocks and obstacles in our law enforcement career, and and the information seemed to be flowing up and down the chain of command. Where what if you wanted information from another source? And these podcasts, these interviews with guests like yourself, who frankly humble me that you even came on and, and accepted it, um, is a great way to seek information, not cut it down, like you said, not take these sound bites, not really edit it or, or craft the narrative how people want to hear it or you want them to hear it and just get the information out. And to do it in this living room style format, I think, you know, the average police officers like Ryan and I want to tap in who's going to drive in their police car tonight on midnight shift, listen to this podcast, and I guarantee they're going to learn something from you. And well, it's an amazing so. process. All right. You guys said you had kind of a, a set of questions that you, you wanted to kind of drive it that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're, we have some, yeah. uh, Ryan and I did a lot of show prep, a lot of production yeah. meetings to uh, make sure we get this hammered in. So well, I, I'm going to start it off because I'm big on mindset when Ryan and I is too, but um, huge. being a young infantry soldier, it's really not a normal process of getting constructed to kill or capture the enemy, that, that process from civilian to soldier. But it's a very, you have to do it. You have to get in that process, that training, that regimented. It's so important because our military is the best. And to become the best, you have to train like the best. But the concept of killing is, is still interesting for me as former infantrymen in combat. Unfortunately, been around uh, the loss of life, a lot of it. And then come going to be a police officer. And it's really not about loss of life. It's about doing your job. However, there is still a mantra of we look at civilians. Sometimes it could be the enemy. Um, and me having fought the enemy in the battlefield, you know, our civilian population is not the enemy, but I see why we, uh, especially cops that weren't prior military, I see why that happened. So I wanted to see what your thoughts were. Uh, uh, when I read your book shortly before I deployed to Iraq, it really resonated with me because I was trying to frame my mindset. What made it motivated you to write that book? What experience in your life? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. You talk about mindset and, uh, and uh, let's, uh, you know, what, what motivates us. And let's come back to that. But the, the first book uh, on killing uh, came out while I was in the Army. You know, in 1974, enlisted 82nd Airborne Division. We had Vietnam veterans all around us. I was, uh, I was E5 in 22 months, uh, which is representative of how bad things were in those days. Uh, turnover was horrendous. Uh, the people we couldn't get rid of. Uh, but uh, uh, we had Vietnam vets all around us. And we wanted them to tell us what combat was going to be like. And they wouldn't say it was like this taboo topic. So fast forward a decade, I'm a young infantry captain en route to teach at West Point, going to graduate school. And I did my graduate thesis uh, on killing. And ultimately, I turned in one chapter as my thesis because I didn't want anybody to claim the army owned my book. And, and I had the book on killing pretty much finished coming out of grad school. You know, it's like this this graduate thesis that wouldn't die, you know, just metastasized, you know, into this. Uh, and, uh, and it, it took almost another decade to get it into print, working and reworking. And uh, people don't realize the incredible amount of work that goes into a good book. But uh, uh, the book came out in 1995. I didn't get out until uh, really uh, uh, December 97 on terminal leave. And, uh, uh, and prior to the war, the only ones who were in combat every day was really law enforcement. And they had the acid test. They had the daily reality test. And as I traveled and spoke and studied, I began to realize that what was at the heart of combat was not so much killing, although on killing is important. It, 
It's been cited over 3,200 times in academic scholarly works, you know, according to Google Scholar. But what's really important is what I put in on combat, uh, auditory exclusion, slow motion time. How in the hell could we have had 500 years of gunfighter combat and not let people know the shots get muted? You know, I mean, it's just bizarre, the things we don't know. And, I, and when people go into combat completely un, unwarned about tunnel vision, slow motion time, I, it was just a week before last, I was in uh, right outside of New York City, had a bunch of NYPD and other good guys and uh, some U.S. Marshals. And they'd gotten in a hellacious gunfight. And one of the marshals talked about how she saw the bullet. And as she, she leaned, the guy shot at her. And, and as he was shooting, she leaned back. And she said she saw the bullet go right there and clip her hair. And, and you know, it's, when people see the bullet in combat, it's not like the Matrix where it crawls past. It's like airsoft, the paintball. We've all done it. You know, airsoft, paintball, we track the bullet with the right. And people are actually doing that. And it blows their minds. Memory gaps and... And, uh, and memory distortions. And then the aftermath, you know, when you re-experience the event, it's not PTSD, it's normal, but you need to know what to do about it. And so uh, uh, on killing, on combat, my second book evolved from there. But uh, I, I think what lies at the heart of it all is just understanding why we do what we do. And you really made a great point up front about uh, what makes us different than infantry, where our goal is to kill or capture. Uh, you know, I trained Predator and Reaper squadrons across America. They're whacking bad guys and they're doing, doing awesome work. But that Reaper operator has been ordered to kill that terrorist. If they do not kill that terrorist, they have failed in their job. Now, in law enforcement, I'm a reserve cop. As cops, our job is never to kill. And that's so important to understand. We are using deadly force because we sincerely believe there is no other option in the face of immediate threat of life, limb, or grievous bodily harm of self or others. The moment that person is no longer a threat, we'll slap on a tourniquet, we'll apply CPR, we'll call the ambulance, and their life is suppression any other life on the planet. You know, uh, probably the first major gunfight caught on live national TV was Hollywood bank robbery. Bank robbers with body armor and rifles, blazing gunfight with LAPD, all caught on camera. Finally, the bad guys are down, and we watch LAPD jump on those bank robbers, strip off their body armor, and try to save their lives. Oh, those bank robbers just trying to kill the cops. And now the cops are trying to save their life. That's right. We're always trying to save lives. But as a result of what we do, there's a very good chance lives will be lost. And it is not to be taken lightly. But I think that brings us back to what is our motivating factor. And you know what? Uh, I've got my kind of my little a little studio set up here and, and, and you know, since 9-11 started, or since the pandemic started, and we've kind of got a part of the room that we've, we've got set off for this. But, uh, you know, we, it all comes down to, to love. John 15, 13, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for their friends. But there's many ways to lay down your life. And sometimes the greatest love is not to sacrifice your life but to live a life of sacrifice, to do a dirty, dangerous job every day of your life, because you know, if nobody did it, our civilization would no longer exist. And think about one day without justice, empty all the prisons, empty all the jails, 2.45 million, let them all go for a day, they promise they'll come back. No cop, no jail, no law, for one day. Uh, a murder, hey, rape, theft, it's the law of the jungle. If you can take it, it's yours. 
what, what, what it would be like. Or like that movie, The Purge. Nah, The Purge didn't empty the prisons. The Purge didn't turn off all laws. It would be orders of magnitude worse than The Purge. It would be catastrophic breakdown of our civilization. We can go a day without teachers. We found out we can go months without teachers. Life goes on. We can go a day without doctors. If you got sick, it'd be ugly, but life goes on. One day without justice. Empty all the prisons, empty all the jails, turn off all the laws, and you would never put the pieces back together again. This is the one irredeemably, irrefutably essential job in every civilization. And, and the social contract, from the pharaohs and the Romans onto us, the social contract says this, you obey the law, you pay your taxes, and we'll help keep you safe. Ain't that the deal? Obey the law, pay your taxes, we'll keep you safe. If we can't keep them safe, why would they obey our laws? Why would they pay the taxes? That's a social contract, and it's our moral responsibility to keep them safe. So with all that said, when we talk about love, I want you to understand how desperately bad the situation has become. Medical technology is holding down the murder rate. Anytime we talk about the problem in terms of the murder rate, we're lying if we don't allow for medical technology. Imagine if somebody said, well, your grandpa made 25 cents an hour. You make $25 an hour. Look how good you've got it. Well, what's the big lie here? Something called inflation we all understand. Well, just like we have inflation adjusted dollars, we need medically adjusted murders. So I give you, we got one good solid data point, a UMass Harvard study, a peer reviewed journal between the 1960s and the 1990s, medical technology cut the murder rate to a third or a quarter would otherwise be. So to take the murders in the 90s and compare to the 60s, you got to compare the murders in the, you got to take the murders in the 90s and multiply by a factor of three or four. And the leaps and bounds of life-saving technology, it's the 90s are astounding. Tourniquets alone have cut the murder rate in half. Now, cop slaps a tourniquet on a crime victim, saves a life, we prevented a murder. You get it? We're preventing murders every day with life-saving technology. So when the FBI tells us the murder rate over the years, they're lying without allowing for medical technology. I was called to the White House as part of President Trump's roundtable on uh, on violent video games, personally handed him a copy of my book, Assassination Generation, was invited to the White House again to brief the vice president and told him about, you know, that the murder rate's being held down by medical technology. Uh, the situation is much, much worse than it looks. And he had a really intelligent question. He said, well, what about the aggravated assault rate? I said, it's too easy to fudge that data. Where do we draw that magic line between egg assault and simple assault? You know, it's, it's like great inflation in the school, but dead is dead. Murders a lot, people are hiding murders, they're, they're, they're playing tricks with it. But in general, the murder rate is pretty solid data if we allow for medical technology. So the situation is orders of magnitude worse. Uh, to compare murders between now and the 60s, you have to multiply by a factor of at least seven. All right, now with all that said then, the highest annual increase in homicides we've ever seen was 12% one year in the 1960s. And then in 2020, homicides were up 30%. This almost three times higher than anything we've ever seen. No, we're comparing to the 60s. We have to multiply by a factor of at least seven. 2020 was 20 times worse than anything we have ever seen. The wheels came off the bus and people don't even know it. 
Did you even know it was up 30%, let alone allowing for medical technology? Did you even know the highest we've ever seen was 12% one year? No, no. How come we don't know this stuff? That There's just so many people that are invested and saying it's all hunky-dory out there. There's not a problem out there. And the cops are down there right in the middle of it. So 2020, homicides increased. And the year-over-year -year increase in homicides is good data. By the way, the only good assessment of murdered cops is year-over-year -year increase. Not only is medical technology keeping cops alive, but we have body armor, we have tactics, we have training, we have technology, we have equipment. Uh, the only good assessment of cops murdered in the line of duty is a year-over-year -year increase. In 2016, well, five dead cops in Dallas, four dead cops in Baton Rouge. 2016 was the single worst year-over-year -year increase in cops murdered until 2021. 2021, we had more cops murdered as of August last year than all the previous year put together. 2021 was head and shoulders, the worst year-over-year -year increase in cops murdered in the history of our nation. In spite of all of our body armor, in spite of our training, in spite of our tactics, in spite of medical technology, a record number of cops were murdered last year, and this year's looking even worse. So 2020, homicides exploded like nothing we've ever seen before, and 2021 is even worse. If 2021 had stayed the same, it'd be bad. We don't have the final Fed data, but we know it's a notch worse. So things are coming unglued and people don't even know it. So the question then becomes mindset. Why do we do what we do? Why do we walk out the door every day? Nobody ever became a cop to get stinking filthy American dream rich, at least not legally. Nobody became a cop to be a famous celebrity, at least not in a good way. When you became a cop, you accepted a life of sacrifice and you must believe your sacrifice for a noble and worthy purpose. And that brings us back to love. You know, I'm 65 years old waiting at home for me. It's my bride of uh, 46 years, my high school sweetheart. She was 15. I was 17 when I proposed to her. We, we are from Arkansas. And two years <laughs> later, two years later, she married a crazy army paratrooper and been on this ride with me a couple months, maybe 47 years. I love her more than life itself. And yet, I'm out on the road, you know, and uh, I, I'll be heading out old dark 30 tomorrow morning. If, if I'm lucky, I'll get back on Thursday and turn around and do it again. You know, God go visit, clean underwear, back on the road. But why, why? Because I love my children. Because I love my grandchildren. Because I love my nation. I love my God. And if we truly love our children, if we truly love our nation, if we love our God, we will walk out that door and give 100%. That's what love means. If you had a sick baby, would you abandon your child? That's it. Sick baby. I'm out of here. I didn't sign on for this. No. No, you'd break the bank. You'd start a Kickstarter fund. You or your spouse would quit their job to, to try to be there full time to take care of a sick child. That's what love means. Our nation is sick. Our nation is so tragically sick. The wheels are coming off. The bus is coming unglued from every direction. Do we abandon what we love in the darkest hour? No. But that brings us back to the mindset. And, and, and it's got to be, you know, I, I can't tell you my cops tell me I love my job. I love what I do. Don't love your agency because, because they're an entity. It's like, you know, like loving a corporation. You know, they, they, they're just, they're, they're going to keep chugging along doing their job. You can love the people. You can love the leaders. You can love your community. And you you got to recognize that the agency is an, is an impersonal entity. You know, uh, Dave Smith writes about that a lot. Don't, don't love your agency because they can't love you back. 
There's going to be somebody new. There's going to be new leadership. There's going to be new policies. But you love your comrades. You love your people. You love them enough to walk out that door and die for them. And so I just tell you that our mindset has got to be that this is a dark and desperate time. The violence of the Old West is a Hollywood myth. And I was driven by curiosity. I was driven to write my books by curiosity. But then when I began working with cops every day, I realized these guys are facing life and death every day. And they need all the help we can give them. And I actually wrote my book on combat for my son going to Afghanistan, the invasion of Afghanistan, first of nine combat tours my son is, is engaged in. And, I, and the book I wrote for my kid going into the fight is the one I'd want cops to have first and foremost is on, on combat. But then the final step, just two years ago, my book on spiritual combat came out. Because in the end, we're a battle against forces of evil. We need a force for good in our side. But I was motivated initially by curiosity and it revolved to a need to take the gifts that I have to be able to help the people out there in the mud and the blood and the beer every day. And, and I think our motivation has got to come back around. Our mindset has got to come back around that we love those people enough to die for them. You know, Jesus said, greater love is known than this. They lay down their life for their friends. But what manner of love is this that they led out their life for strangers? What kind of people walk out that door and put their life on the line for people that never even met? I, I mean, this is this is incredible love. This is this is amazing love that men and women will walk out that door and put their life on the line for somebody they never met before. These are our first responders, and most especially our police, who go toward the sound of the guns, who go toward the violence, who protect us from this toxic realm. And and I just tell you that you. You got to believe in who you are and believe in what you do. The violence of the Old West is a Hollywood myth. I, I can, off the top of my head, I'll introduce you to 20 gunfights that make the OK Corral pale by comparison that you never even heard of. Uh, we're in times that make the, the Old West pale by comparison. You are the thin line of heroes. And, and again, it, it hold together the tattered fabric, motivated by what? The big bunch of money? No. By all the fame? No. What are you motivated for? Oh, because cops like to push people around. No. If cops like the, the self-restraint the cops have to represent on a daily basis is mind-boggling. The the, the, the the psychological filtering they have to go through is mind-boggling. The idea that they want to be cops because they like to boss people around is just about one of the asinine, stupid ideas you could ever have. And that brings us back to defund the police. But what kind of people would think if we got rid of all the cops, it would get better? Defund the police is the sickest, most twisted, and dangerous conspiracy theory in modern history. The idea that the cops are the bad guys and the criminals are the good guys. It is a goofy, twisted conspiracy theory. And the president in, in the State of the Union address rejected defund the police. He said, we have to fund the police. 99 out of 100 senators voted on a resolution to reject defund the police. The remaining one just wasn't there that day. And, 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 you know, the BLM guy, Cory Booker, Senator Booker said, nobody has our six, nobody has our back. Well, I thought BLM and defund the police were two different things. Apparently they think it's the same. But recognize that every politician has all this uh, political support they need to reject defund the police. It's the social contract, it's breaking down on us. It's time to put more resources in. It's time to hire more cops and to pay them more. We're a rich nation. Things are wrong. We throw money at it. 
We had not even begun to throw money at this problem. So we must now begin the process of systematically hunting down and getting rid of every single politician who believes in this goofy conspiracy theory of defund the police. The president has rejected it. The Democrat president, 99 out of 100 senators have rejected defund the police. We must hunt down every single politician with the twisted, sick mindset that criminals are the good guys and cops are the bad guys and run them out of office. But in the meanwhile, great harm has been done. And it's going to take decades to turn this thing around. And you're the thin line of heroes who maintain us. You're, you're not doing what you do for the money. Although in the future, you'll see cops getting paid a lot more money. It's going to happen. You're not doing it to be rich and famous. You're not doing it because you like pushing people around. <laughs> if that was the goal, this would be the last job you'd be doing. Now you're doing the job because you want to use your life to make the world a little bit better place. Because you love your family, you love your community. And that brings us back full cycle to the mindset and, and, and what it's all about. Does that make sense? Oh, makes complete sense. I actually wrote down L-O-V-E, love, because I'm a huge believer of love, sir. And uh, you, you, we cannot go into military, uh, harm's way, police officer in our communities if you don't love either the people, the community, your brother, sister. You have to love something about that to, to, to be good at that job, I believe. <laughs> And, and we don't and, often talk about that. It lies at the heart of who we are and what we do. Yeah, I, I feel like people are afraid. I mean, I my one of my best friends, Fernando Santos, uh, was killed by an IED in, in Iraq, and um, we got promoted to sergeant together on September first, two thousand one. And I still have the picture of that ceremony. And we, as soon as we saluted and formation was over, we looked at each other, big smiles. There's a picture of that, and um, you know, we never knew ten days later, nine eleven would happen, and he he would end up getting killed. But he's a first generation American, Mexican American, four kids, no, uh, has a GED, uh, salt of the earth guy. But he said, "I love you" to, to everybody in the unit, and everybody loved him for that. He was one of the only guys who could get away with it. And I said, Fernando, why do you say I love you to everybody? He's like, because I do. You have to love. We have to love each other if we're going to do our job the best we can. I just. He was 22 years old. I mean, just way ahead of his time. Unbelievable. So, uh, sir, you, you've coined the term sheepdog, and I love that because, and everybody talks about this term, but it really is, and you reference this, and I believe it was on killing of, of the 1% of the civilization that is tasked to protect the other 99%, the sheepdogs. Um, for, for returning veterans, and this is an interest to me because returning veterans for me, like me, that went from combat, came home to our communities, now was a law enforcement officer, Switching that mindset to me was a challenge. And there was a transition there from my mindset to kill or capture to now serve, protect. And oh, by the way, anytime you come into work, any, any single day could be a day you're forced to use violence or forced to protect yourself or your community. How, how, how do you or what have you found to navigate successfully that that balance of mindset to do my job service oriented, but also to be physically fit, mentally prepared for the, for the event I have to take a life or use violence. And, and, and you know, the great model of that, it was just almost 20 years ago. I was in Boston in their academy and, uh, and the guys running the police academy there said, you know, how do we communicate this concept that you've got to be friendly to everybody? You've got to have, you know, just this friendliness and to everybody, but be ready to explode into violence to protect them at their hour of greatest need. That, that, and I said, I said, well, that's the sheepdog model. You know, you should have a mascot who's a, some kind of working dog, or they end up with some bulldog, you know, some marine bulldog type thing. Okay, that's good. 
You gotta have a mascot, you know, and they, they, there's a dog there. If I were king, I will put a cop in every school in America, elementary school, middle school, high school, It'd be the greatest investment we'd ever make. And they'd all have a dog. And that dog would be one of those dogs that, you know, the kids have pet him and he loves to be around the kids all day long. But somebody threatens his kids, he's all fur and fangs. And that's our model. You know, we've all grown up with dogs, you know, and most of us have. Americans love dogs, you know. And everything we do, the defund the police sickos and the Antifa wackos will attack. Says whatever you do, they're going to attack it. And it, there's a, a law enforcement trainer that says, well, you know, okay, so so the sheepdog model, they don't like that one. Well, I'm going to be the shepherd. We're shepherds, see, and we're protecting our flock. Oh, you know, the shepherd's a person, and the sheep are critters, you know, and the the shepherd decides who's mutton and who's lamb chops, and the, the shepherd shears you once a year and leaves you naked, you know. I'm just a sheepdog. I'm just another critter, you know. I, I'm not superior to the sheep and until the wolf shows up. Then my moment has come, you know. And, and Americans love dogs. See, we can embrace that model where that dog on the front steps, the kids can pull his tail and poke his ribs, and he won't bite. But a bad man shows up, and he's all fur and fangs. And that's, that's our model. And, and the transition from military to law enforcement is not all that hard. It's a matter of degrees. You know, you've been in more or less police type operations. The Marines talk about a three block war where you have, you know, full on combat in one block and the next block you're hunting an insurgent. The next block you're you're providing medical support and passing out food, you know, and, and, and you've done all three. You know, you've seen this variety of dynamics. You can shift roles very easily. Once you've, you've learned the tools and made the discernment and know what the rules of engagement are, it's just not that hard to make that transition because the root motivation is the same, you know, love, you know, and, and, and like you said, your, your E5 friend, what an what a, what a awesome example. I love you, dude. I mean, that, that's something we could be saying every day, and, and we do in so many ways. And, uh, you know, a, a friend of mine said recently, he said, you know, I have people in my department I don't like, but I, I would die for him. <laughs> you know, I, got, I got family members I don't like, but I, I would die for him. You know, and that's what that's what love is all about. That's who we are. That's what we do. And and so just to answer the question, I think that sheepdog model really helps us embrace that concept of the capacity for violence that never come never even comes out until boom, the bad man shows up and then we're all firm fangs. And and that balancing act of loving and friendly to everybody. And that goes back to you. The only time you ever saw a cop was when he you know, gave you a ticket at 16 and, and he had a really twisted representation of law enforcement. But let's talk about putting the cops in those schools because we're a rich nation and, and school violence has exploded. It's, it hasn't hit the news. It's just not getting out there, but the data's there. There has never been a multiple homicide in the school with an armed cop present in the building with two exceptions. There's never been a multiple homicide in a school with an armed cop in the building, with two exceptions. So, so number one, having a cop in that school reduces the very probability. There have been a couple of solo homicides that stopped real fast. Now, the two exceptions were Santa Fe, Texas, and recently in Oxford, Michigan. In both cases, the minute the cop showed up, nobody else died. Now, the, the kid in Santa Fe, Texas, brought the cop under fire, put a loaded double-lock buck into the wall, and the cops kind of behind cover and wall and loaded double-lock buck and arterial bleeding. Uh, the other cop slaps on a tourniquet, and they continued to keep this kid under fire, and, and nobody else died from that point on. 
the kid in Oxford, the best I can tell, Oxford, Michigan, the cop showed up and it was done. He didn't even try to fight. So statistically speaking, I can prove to you that the single best thing you can do to keep your kids safe from violence is put a cop in that school. But even more so, if the only time they see a cop is when they give their mom a ticket or arrest their dad, we lose. Their, their opinion of law enforcement is completely flawed. But if that cop's there in their school every day, if he's there for them in the hour of greatest need, if he if he drops down on one knee and puts a hand on the kid's shoulder and talks to him, you know, and with just a little bit of training. And, and let me give you three questions, three, three sentences, uh, you know, de-escalation. I'm a guy that likes to distill everything down to the basics. So here are three of the most important questions to ever ask. You use it with your kid, you use it as an SRO, use it with your spouse, use it with somebody in emotional trouble on the job. Number one, please tell me what's wrong. A little grandkid the other day, I said, sweetie, tell me what's wrong. Please tell me what's wrong. Number two, I'm sorry this has happened to you. Now, those two questions, tell me what's wrong, gives them a chance to vent, and then I'm sorry. Truly, it's true. I, I mean, I, I'm sorry this has happened to you. And then finally, I will do everything in my power to help you. And those three sentences are three of the most powerful things we can never say. It applies to the kid that... You know, it says, I'm being bullied by this kid. You know, I'm sorry this is happening to you. I'll do everything in my power to help you. And that's all people want to hear. That's what they want to hear. But to, to have a cop in school doing that for them, for have somebody there keeping them safe, whenever there's danger, the cop is running down the hallway towards the danger, you know, when, it, it, that, that they, they, you know, all of us, most of us had a dog as a kid, whatever kind of dog you had. You see that breed of dog, you want to go across the street and, and pat him and, you know, and, and, and scratch behind his ears, you know. Well, every kid in America is getting their own sheepdog, the cop. And they see that for the rest of their life. They see that uniform, they see that cop, and they just want to shake their hand and tell them, thank you for being there for me when I was a kid. Thank you for being there for me in my school every day, keeping me safe and going toward the danger. And, the, and that's what we're, we're going to win this battle. The reason why the cop haters hate the school resource officers. They hate DARE, they hate GREAT because they hate cops and they do not want cops to have positive interaction with the kids. The reason why they're, they're trying to indoctrinate these kids in elementary school with sexual dynamics is because they know they can shape them at these young ages and they wanna shape them. They wanna keep the cop out of the school. They wanna to try to, to groom these kids for sexual dynamics at a young age and, and that's evil. To take the cops out and put evil in, that's evil. And the parents are standing up for it. But we've got to get our word in to let them know that the best thing we could ever do is to put a cop in every one of those schools. And we're a rich nation. Half the cost of the school building goes into fire code. Uh, we, we could spend a little bit of money to keep them safe from violence. Uh, that, you know, and so you, you kind of come on to it, this, this dynamic. How do, we, how do we put that model there? that we're there for them and they're our greatest need. We drop down on one knee, put a hand on the kid's shoulder and ask them the three questions. Please tell me what's wrong. You know, I'm sorry that happened to you. I'll do everything in my power to help you. But on the other hand, to go into the blazing gunfight and like that cop in, in Santa Fe, Texas, to take arterial bleeding, you know, an arm and slap a tourniquet on it and continue to fight. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's what it's all about. Now, that's how we're going to win. We're going to win the hearts and minds of our citizens by being there for them in their darkest hour. And every bad thing that happens is an opportunity for you to be there for them. 
with courage and honor, and they will never forget. They will never forget. Love that. You know, it's cool. funny you mentioned, um, and I love this because this is something I was just talking about somebody the other day. Um, your way to de-escalate. And I, one of my buddies said to me, Hey, I noticed you really don't ever fight with your wife. Like what, what's the deal? Don't you guys disagree? And I said, we disagree. So what's your secret? I said, I apologize. Oh, when you do something wrong. No, even when I don't do something wrong, even maybe she did something wrong. I'll say, Hey, I'm sorry. You're having a bad day. Or I'm sorry. You're taking this the wrong way. And I'll just sit there and look at her and won't say anything else. And then we yeah. just don't argue. It's like, you know, I, cause my ego is, is down and I learned, I don't want to fight. I don't want to argue. So I'll, yes. I don't care about myself. Um, so one of the things, sir, that really attracted to me to you uh, years ago and still to this day is uh, how, how important faith is in your life. Um, it really just resonates with me. Um, and, and I want to dig a little bit into that is, have there, has there ever been a time in your life where you question your faith or uh, you weren't as sure as you were? Maybe it was a traumatic wow. situation. And then if so, how did you overcome that? You know, always. I've only met a handful of people in my life who truly 100% completely believed if they die right now, they're going to heaven. Now, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty confident. You know, I don't want to put it to the test right now. But uh, I, I think we all have this degree of uncertainty. We can never know. That's what faith is all about. It's faith is confidence in things unseen. And, uh, and it, it's the logical and rational choice uh, to believe in a loving God. And, and, uh, and the model that I've wrapped my mind around recently. Now, you know, my dog doesn't understand most of what I do. You know, all speech is lost on my dog. Get up in the morning, put clothes on. The dog has absolutely no idea why I do that. And which clothes you pick, no idea whatsoever. I'm, I'm doing this right now. One of my dogs is here at my feet, has not a clue what I'm doing or why I'm doing it, you know? Uh, the books, I, the reading I do, the writing I do, the dog hasn't got a clue. That All that dog knows is he's got to trust me and obey me. Because if the dog's going to get fed, you know, it, it, and, and, and the dog runs into the street, you know, they're, they're, they're roadkill, you know, they gotta, they gotta, and, and my dog is, got, got, I got a, I got a chocolate lab, just a sweet little gray muzzled old dog. And, and if I let her off the leash, she'll go in the neighbor's yard and she'll roll in something stinky, but I still love her. Well, see, I think it's the same way with God. Now we know when we get to heaven, we're told that we'll understand these things. We'll be brought to a level of understanding we can't even comprehend. It's like my dog suddenly be able to comprehend and understand everything I do. That's going to happen when we get to heaven. But right now, it's all I can handle to think about being God's faithful dog. I'm just God's faithful sheep dog protecting his flock, you know, and, uh, and uh, uh, I don't understand much. You know? I understand that he's there and he loves me and he died for me. I understand that 11 out of the 12 disciples were murdered, were, were, were martyred for their faith. All they'd do is say, I was a big con job. We made it up and they'd be fine. No, men don't die for a lie. The, the remaining one of the 12 was uh, with John who died in, on, uh, in uh, uh, exile on the Isle of Patmos. You know, you don't live your final years in exile for a lie. And then all those second generation believers, and those are recorded in hard Roman history over and over again, these are the people who knew the disciples and who laid down their life. And all they had to do is say, oh, it's a big con job. We made it up. I, I, you know, it's not really true. And they'd be lying. Millions of people have been martyred across the decade, across the centuries. And that's no exaggeration. Right now, two, oh, well over 2 billion people on this earth believe in Jesus Christ. They're Christians. 
Uh, that's the largest religion by far. Uh, you know, if there was a God, he'd be there from the beginning. You know, he didn't show up to Muhammad. I'm sorry. He didn't just show up to Muhammad and say, okay, here's the plan at 700 AD. Well, where you been the rest of the time? Don't worry about it. Here's the plan now. No, no. Our, our God's recording goes all the way from prehistory. And it, and it, and it, the amazing thing is it never uplifts any human being. King David, I'm David. I love King David. Well, look at all the bad things David did. Look at all the bad things you did. What kind of king would allow all those bad things to be written down? Uh, you know, that no human being is being honored in the Old Testament except a coming Messiah and, and who is prophesied over and over again. And then the New Testament that tells the coming of that Messiah, four different witnesses independently write it down, 12 different witnesses. And, you know, Thomas touched the wounded inside after he came back, you know, and, and, and they all laid down the life and belief of that. And, and, and all of those prophecies being fulfilled. I mean, this is this is just astounding. If, you know, if, if you and a few of your friends are the only ones that know God, and I'm sorry, he's not much of a God. It, you know, my God has his word in every hotel room of the land, and my God has his church in every every city in the world, you know. And, uh, you know, if, if you and a few friends, you know, if, if there's not a lot of people that are coming along, then maybe you got something wrong here. But it's a long-winded way of saying that I came to God with my head and then with my heart. I realize this is the rational thing that they're, uh, and, and people say, I want to believe there's a loving God. Well, that's, that's your little seed of belief. Plant that seed and ask for more belief. And you knew that the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to have more belief. Teach us to have greater faith. A man came to Jesus to hear his son, and Jesus said, if you had enough faith, then it can be possible. He said, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Boom, Jesus went and healed his son. I mean, you know, that's just, I believe, help my unbelief. You get that little seed of faith. You say, I wish there was a God. And that's really where I came about. And saying it would be a beautiful thing. It would be a good thing if there was such a God. Well, that's belief. You take that little seed of belief. And, and if you think there's even a remote possibility, it's true. If you think that 11 disciples were murdered for their faith and all those followers and, and 2 billion people believe and millions were murdered for their faith, then is there just a faint possibility it might be true? If it is true, it's the most important thing in the universe. So the big question is, why do bad things happen? But see, we're not God's puppets. We don't want to be God's puppet. I, that's not love. You've heard the thing, if, if, you know, if you love something, let it go, it comes back, it's yours. Well, God loves us enough to let go. He gives us free will. And that means people do bad things. And that means we need police officers. That means we need people to protect the innocent. And, 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 and you know, people do bad things. We're, we're not God's puppets. He's given us free will. But here's the key to wrap your mind around. Eternity is hanging in the balance. Look, our, our nation will pass. Our world will die. Our son will die. And eternity goes on. You, you can't even grasp the magnitude of it. Another couple of years of suffering on this earth is nothing compared to eternity. Don't pray for your loved ones to have more time on this earth. Don't pray for less suffering. Pray for them to come to the understanding of eternity. And, and, and once you get that dynamic, once you understand that all of this stuff here is unimportant compared to what God, and what has God told us to do? To love God and to love others as yourself. That's the ultimate commandment. He said, this is everything. And then everything else can be lumped into one thing. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So we're told to love God and love people. That's our mission, to love. There we go, boom, back to love. That's all he asks of us. 
And that's good because that's all we got to give. And, uh, and, and so when we face these trials and tribulations, when you look in the eyes of evil, and the world's full of people that believe there's a force for evil in this world, but don't believe in a force for good. <laughs> You're in a bind. You know, you've, you've painted yourself into a corner. You believe in supernatural forces of evil. You can't deny it. You've seen it every day. And you don't believe in a force for good. If there is a force for good, he's not hiding under a rock. His, his word is in every hotel room and his, his churches are in every, every city. You know, it, it, it wouldn't be hard. You know, if there's a real God, he's not hiding under a rock somewhere. He's out there where everybody would know, giving his blessings and dominion to his people. And, and so at, uh, I, I don't see how in the end you can lead a successful life from beginning to end without having faith in something greater than yourself without having the knowledge that there can be eternity waiting for us. And when we grasp that, then really winning the argument with your wife is unimportant compared to love and eternity. You know, I, our nation, I'm ready to fight and die for our nation right now. But in the end, it's not as important as bringing people to the knowledge of salvation in eternity. And, and so get those things focused. And, uh, you know, the chaplain corps in the army is for God and country. The Latin word for the chaplain corps is God and country. And that's it. That's, that's everything. And to love God and to love people. And, and, and then to do good deeds for people and to give the honor and glory to God. And all of that, all of that, long-winded way of saying, in my book on spiritual combat, uh, we've got the sequel coming out. I've just signed the contract. Going to get the manuscript to the publisher in the next week on spiritual combat volume two. And if you got a remote idea that there might be a God, if you got a remote idea there might be an aftermath, if you wish it was so, then that's your seed of belief. You know, if if you think it might be so, then then that means it's important and you need to figure out. If you're mad at God because of bad things happen, well, that means you know there's God. <laughs> you need to get right with God and understand why he lets bad things happen. He gives us free will and people make bad choices and, and he put you there to make us safe and to, and to confront those things. All that's in the book, and that's a pretty long-winded answer to, a, to an awful important question. Is a role that faith needs to play in our in our, our warrior path, and how hard it is, almost impossible without that. When you come to the end, you know your 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 your, your children will leave you, your your spouse will die, your job will end, your nation will end. Uh, the only thing your 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 health will go, your beauty will go, everything will go. The only person that will stay with you all the way to the end and beyond is, is God. And if we don't have that, then it's going to be awful hard making your way through this, uh, through all the trials and tribulations that lay in front of us. But if we have a deeper understanding of what lies at the end and why we're here to love God, to love people, to do good deeds, to bring people to the knowledge of salvation, then boom, it, it all comes together and, and empowers us in a supernatural way. That it, it is, you know, so it, it comes back around to your faith. And, and uh, there's still a part of me. You know, we're, I, I, I've only seen one or two people who died with 100% confidence. They're going straight to heaven. There's this doubt. You can't help it. It's part of being human. You know, so we pray for more faith. And yes, I, I face that doubt on a daily basis. You know, it's a, and really our faith path is a series of ups and downs, hills and valleys. But you get to a point where the lows, you know, like you go into a distant mountain peak and you climb the foothills, right? And after a while, you enter the lower level mountains and then you're in the higher mountains. You finally get that distant peak. And, and the lows are higher than the highs used to be. 
and the highs are higher than anything you've experienced before in this constant walk as we go through the lows and the and the, the ups and the downs and we're, we're told to rejoice in those low points we're told to rejoice in the bad stuff and uh, and you know but we glory in tribulation Nietzsche said what doesn't kill us only makes us stronger Nietzsche stole that from the Bible <laughs> we're told to to rejoice in these bad things because they will make us stronger and and so yeah it's, it's always ups and downs uh, and and it's a just an ongoing dynamic and but when we die then poof we'll go straight to the top of the highest mountain and uh, and and the journey's over and 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 we're now understanding you know with all of our heart and all of our soul but let me show you something uh, you see here She's oh, yeah. my old gray muscle chocolate. She's like me. If I grew a beard, it would be all gray. <laughs> she doesn't understand much at all. She just knows. And, and this is what I want to tell you. Now, this point I want to make. Uh, Will Rogers was a, kind of a wise man in the 30s and 40s. Will Rogers said, if you get to thinking you're a man of some importance, try telling another man's dog what to do. You ever done that? You know, the dog looks at you and says, look, I don't know much. I, I'm just a dog. I know this. I'm not your dog, right? You know? So <laughs> when the evil one comes to you, you look at him and say, I don't know much, but I don't know this. I'm not your dog. <laughs> I love you that. Know? Yeah. I, I love that. that. That is fantastic. So one of my favorite things to talk about, and I, and I think it's because it, it, it changed my life so much, and I wish I knew about it earlier. And, and we've talked about it, and that's having the growth mindset. Yeah. And our mindset to be completely growing. And I know that I wasn't aware of the growth mindset when I was growing up. And when I became a police officer, I think it was, I had become. Now I can go out and do my job. I never really took that growth mindset into, into play to be able to become the police officer that I think I could have been. Yeah. Um, I think that was ultimately what kind of led me out is that when I, when I, learned about the growth mindset, started studying it and becoming it, I was on a path that was leading me out of law enforcement. And I, I let it take myself that way. So guess my question would be, when, when did you become aware and when did you start embracing that growth mindset that led you on the path of growth that you've had from, from your military career all the way to, to what you're doing now and beyond? You know, it, it's, it's a great question. No one's ever asked before. And I'm thinking it over. And I tell you, I think where that growth mindset is most focused is um, in, in, in your church. And, and you know, I, I've got a Bible. I've got, uh, I've had for over 40 years now. It's, uh, it's a parallel Bible. So it's got four different translations side by side. And it's got lots of white space. And the white space is just filled with notes. You know this sermon and and i think you know when when you go to church on a weekly basis and you you pay attention and you make notes and i love making notes in the margin of the bible someday someone's look through that bible you know i i read through it a couple of times a couple three times and read through it one time trying to find something to highlight on every single page so you you couldn't turn a page without finding something that was highlighted and and you know and it's got all these margin notes and all these things from all these sermons and and just recently, just recently, I started writing down the date, you know, I looked, well, when was that, you know, you know, and I should have been writing down the date from the beginning. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that as we as we get deeper into 
the Bible, as we get deeper into our faith, it represents all of the growth that we do as a human being. You know, one of the greatest areas of personal growth is self-control. And most of us, we get better. And we get older, we get better at that. That's why most of us make better grandparents than we did parents. You know, have, have you ever looked at your parents with your kids and said, are you the same ones that raised me? No, they're not. They're at least 20 years older, more mature. It's called maturity. And we want to get it as fast as we can. So I think in so many ways, as you as you have grandchildren, you have another chance to do it again and to get better at it. Uh, you know, my, my oldest grandson is 20 and just enlisted, uh, you know, and, and very soon we could be great grandparents. And there's another chance to do it again and be even better at it, you know. Uh, and if, if you realize that life is spiritually, you know, in relationship with your, your children, your self-control, your, your knowledge of your craft, your knowledge of your field. You know, for me, my writing is just built on, each book builds on the next and, and the skills and the abilities. We have, a, we have On Spiritual Combat Volume 2, and we also have On Hunting that we just now sent to the, uh, to the editor. It's going to be, I mean, really, if you understand combat, if you understand killing, the next part of the equation is hunting. You know, up until just the last 2,000 years, all we ever did was hunt. That's who we were. It's what we did other than the last couple thousand years. Uh, you know, the hunt is to us what it is to the wolf. You know, the hunt is to us, you know, what, what it is to the, to the eagle. You know, we, 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 that's all we did. And we can't truly understand humankind. We can't understand combat. We can't understand warfare without understanding hunting. So, you know, these books build on each other. Yeah, and I think we never stop reading. We never stop learning. Uh, we, you know, again, your church, you know, as you get a little deeper understanding of faith and you come to different levels. Uh, a lot of times people talk about the training cycle. Oh, I've been around this once before. Oh, we did this before. No, no, no. It's not a cycle. It's just a spiral staircase. And every time you go through the cycle, you do it at a higher level. And that's the way we should view life. Oh, we've done this before. No, no. You know, the training cycle. How many, you know, you've been in the army. I mean, you remember the training cycle, right? You know, this cycle we did this, and this cycle did this, and did this. Oh, next year we do it again and again and again. But it's not a cycle. It was when it hit me. It's a spiral staircase. And every time we go through the cycle, when it went through the cycle as an E5, you were, you were getting far greater understanding. You were able to show others and teach others and bring them up. Then you went through that cycle again as an E6. You can see what, how you've developed. So I think military and law enforcement shows us this development. We, we have incremental steps that come with this. We have achievements that come with it. A lot of great cops never wanted to leave the road. All they ever wanted to do was stay there. And, and God bless them. And yet, they'll tell you they got better at what they did. Uh, Officer Greg Stevens in May of 2015, draw the Prophet Muhammad Art Festival. Uh, two art critics from Arizona showed up with AK-47s and body armor. It could have been the Pulse nightclub times too. Uh, they had body armor, they had rifles, element of surprise, they rolled out of the vehicle. They opened fire on a 59-year-old traffic cop, 37 years on the job. All they ever wanted to do was just be a traffic cop. But in a blazing gunfight, they fired over 30 rounds of rifle fire at him, Officer Greg Stevens hitting virtually every shot fired, wasn't hit once. One of the greatest achievements of marksmanship and courage in American history. And yet all he ever wanted to do was be a traffic cop. He loved it, he loved people, he loved interacting with the people of his community, and he'd gotten better and better and better across the years. But his department had an open range, 
usually one Saturday a month, and he was there on the range, training and training hard. Oh, you go to the range on your own time? You know, because I'm a Texas cop. I live on dirt. The, the range is open. The ammo is free. And you're stupid if you're not there. So, you know, to talk about progress, talk about in progress. At one Saturday a month for 37 years, Officer Greg Stevens made a deposit in his savings account. In May of 2015, he made a major withdrawal. You know, how's your account up? Are you getting to be a better shot? Are you getting to be better equipped? Do you have better knowledge? Are you better at interacting with people? Have you integrated, you know, just th those three questions. Please tell me what's wrong. I'm sorry that's happening to you. I'll do everything in my power to help. Just when you integrate those into your interaction, does it make you a little better? Can you have a sense of growth? So I, I think all of us, if, if we're honest and, and open, we can see the capacity for growth never stops. And it is one of the most rewarding aspects of your lifespan is to look back and say, I've read a new book. I've understood a new concept. I've learned a new dynamic. I went to church and had a little deeper understanding of what was going on there. Uh, you know, and, and it's just this constant growth that is one of the most satisfying things in life as you sit there with your grandkid on your knee and say, I can do a better job for this little one than I did for mine. You know, I'm a better, wiser person. And that's that's that constant growth in life. I can be a better cop than I was when I was just came on the department. I know things, I've got skills, I've got things to contribute that will save lives and help my community be a better place. And that's what it comes down to is never stop growing. Officer Greg Stevens, he said that when he talks to cops, he said, you know, don't be that cop that says, oh, I got to go to training today. No, 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 no. I, I look forward to training, even though it's just report writing. I like classes. My department's trying to make me better. Embrace what they're teaching you. Use what they're teaching you. You know, here's this guy doing the same thing for 37 years and loving it and liking and seeking every class he could get to be better at his job. Uh, and so, you know, and then at the moment of truth, two, uh, two dead bad guys who, uh, who think they can roll out of the vehicle and kill this old cop it got the, the surprise of a lifetime. Uh, you know, that, that, that's us. You know, we, we want to be that person at the moment of truth. We want to be that sheepdog that yearns for the opportunity to use our skills in our great need. And, and as we get further along, as we get more training revolutions, as we got more trigger time, as we get better at what we do, we should be better prepared for our moment of truth and confident in our ability. And that's a constant growth that we want to strive for. Does that make sense? Does that answer the question? Wow, that was that was awesome. Oh, that was that was amazing. And I mean, that's I I hope I hope is that police officers will listen and be able to instill more of that growth mindset into what they're doing. Like you said, enjoy enjoy the training. Find what you can get out of it. Constantly be training, learning, and growing. Yes, and yes. I, I love it. And and um, I just I, I wish I had that mindset. Back many years ago, but I, I truly believe I'm. Where that's I'm part of the growth, isn't it? That's part exactly. of the growth. Exactly. You know, we, we would have blown it off when we were, you know, 20. We've talked a lot about books, and you know, we've mentioned several of the books that that you've authored and you and that you have coming out, which I know a lot of us are going to be looking forward to those as well. What would be your number one book recommendation that you'd recommend to somebody? Bulletproof Marriage. Uh, a 90 day devotional. And, and then you combine that with, on, and I really would want somebody to read on spiritual combat first. Because we talk in Bulletproof Marriage about, you know, 
how rich your relationship can be. Well, what happens when your spouse dies? You know, where's the richness in that? Well, we got to understand that ultimately it's about eternity. But it's it's such good stuff in here that, and the reviews are just mind-boggling. With that said, the next most important book really is uh, is on combat. The book I literally wrote is now in its its fourth edition. Uh, I, I literally wrote for my son going into the fight, the invasion of Afghanistan, uh, on combat, with just the things we need to know. After that would be on killing, and then uh, that assassination generation. I handed a copy to the president. Uh, I handed a copy to the vice president, assassination generation, about how media violence is, is, is causing violence, how the, the murder rate's being held down by medical technology. The Supreme Court case that they want to go away, where they, you know, that the state of California overwhelmingly voted to regulate children's access to violent video games. The home of Silicon Valley, the home of Hollywood, voted to regulate children's access to these murder simulators. Arnold Schwarzenegger signed the bill. He said, I make violent movies, but I protect my children from these things. And, and then uh, they fought all the way to the Supreme Court to sell any game to any kid at any age. They lied. They conned seven old men and never played Pong in their life, overturned the law. Read the book, Assassination Generation, to really understand where we're at right now and what's going on. You know, that that pretty much covers it, that recaps it. There's a couple <laughs> other nuts and bolts ones that are pretty fun to have and that advance yourself. But that, that is the high ground, I think. Awesome. And I, I saw the, the On Marriage book, and I as I work to deepen my relationship, I am definitely going to be picking myself up a, a copy. We have a few um, few books that we've been using, kind of going through, and I'm definitely going to add that one into our library. It's a lot of fun. 90 days, and it's five minutes a day, sheepdog and spouse. But I was, uh, you'll get a kick out of this, uh, uh, Chad. I was, I was training a military unit, and one of the first sergeants comes up. And, uh, you know, I, I'm an old E5, you know, and... Uh, and uh, the lieutenant colonel, first sergeant's still kind of a scary guy, you know. First sergeant comes up and he throws a copy of this down on the table in front of me. He says, sir, I hold you personally responsible. All the arguments my wife and I had over this book. He said, now I go to Amazon, I buy them five at a time, give them all my, all my married troops. I thought, thanks, Tom. That's just about that. Thank you for starting. That's just about the highest compliment I could ever receive. You know? <laughs> so uh, it's, it's, it's a good resource, and you spend some time with it. It'd be time well spent, I think. Yeah. We do a, a segment called Five Questions and Rapid Fire to get to know you as a person, as a man. Are well, you willing to do this? Are you down for right. this? This will be a lot of fun. So quick as you can answer, uh, we try to pick some questions that are uh, interesting to you, uh, doing a little yeah. background. So you're in a black belt in martial arts. I forget which discipline, but who is the biggest badass you train with? Wow. You know, I, I, the, the founder of the martial art of the firearm is, is, uh, up is uh, Jeff Hall. High level martial artist in multiple fields, supernatural pistol shot, one of 20 grandmaster pistol shots on the planet. And created the, the martial art of the farm, Hojutsu, H-O-J-U-T-S-U.com. Uh, it's the martial art of the firearm. And Jeff Hall is the most supernatural gunfighter I've ever seen. He's the most decorated Alaska State Trooper. He was a Vietnam Ranger right at the end of the war. Uh, a a, a high-level martial artist. Uh, just like I said, supernatural guy. You know, our martial art is the gun. We're Americans. We're the people of the gun. The world comes to us for firearms training, and so we've created the, been re resurrected the martial art of the firearm. Jeff Hall is just a supernatural pistol shot, and uh, 
and, and, and always thinking that I've met some badasses. The first thing that popped in my mind was Officer Greg Stevens. Uh, I've had the honor to work beside him upon occasion, but there's some, there's some people out there that are magnificent. You know, Jeff Hall's kind of a, a tall, skinny guy. Greg Stevens got a few extra pounds, a few inches shorter than me. Never, never judge the warrior by the package. Uh, there's some incredible people out there that, you know, that they don't look like, you know, you think the rock god, steely-eyed warrior ought to be. Uh, it, it's all in here, guys. It's all in the head. Love that. All right, second question, sir. Perfect segue. We let you know. We know you love the pistol shoot. What is your favorite pistol and why? You know, I'm a 1911 guy. I, I go back and forth between Glock because the Glock is almost like this universal, and you got to be good with both of them. I go back and forth, but my go-to gun is 1911. I I, I made my black belt in Jujutsu, the martial art, the firearm, uh, and you're shooting for your belt. And it's just, it's a long, awful hundreds of rounds of being fired. One round off the target, you're done. Uh, you know, and, and I could, the straight, short, crisp trigger pull, uh, the accuracy, there's nothing beats a 1911 when you work them hard and long, the reliability. Uh, but right behind it, there's a lot of other good guns too. I'm, I'm a 1911 guy. Awesome. Uh, or, uh, Question three, you're on a desert island. You have one food for the rest of your life, sir. What are you eating? One food. One food. Wow. Can I just, hey, you know, I, I'll, I'll toss this back at you. What's the one thing in the MRE that you need? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, the peanut butter. Oh, it the peanut need, butter, yeah. Need, yeah it says need before using, right? So it's <laughs> A-N-E-A-D. <laughs> I like that. Need I like before that. using. So the one thing you need, <laughs> one thing you need <laughs> is I like peanut that. butter. And actually, if you can only have one food to survive on, that's not a bad answer, you know? That's uh, not yeah. it's, one, it's a great question. What's the one thing at MRE you need? K-N-E-A-D. Need before using. <laughs> I love Thanks that. Thanks, guys. What do you think? All right, number four. Random Saturday morning in the summer. You have nothing on your itinerary calendar. Where will we find you and what are you doing? You know, probably taking the dogs for a walk or out with the grandkids or, you know, maybe doing a little shooting. But, but mostly, uh, you know, spending time with my, my bride, you know. Uh, up in her little sewing studio, and I'm on my little book. Who knows? But yeah, awesome. Uh, you know, there's so much value in getting outside. Well, the, the, the research on being outside, being just in the park. They're, they're doing the research. You know, taking the, the dogs for a walk in the park is is happiness level almost to the same as as Christmas or, or Thanksgiving when they measure endorphin and happiness responses. And and you got to get out every day and take those dogs for a walk. You know, they, they keep you out there. They make it happen. I totally agree. All right, last question, sir. Uh, you've instructed, you presented all over the world. Is there one story or one person that has stuck with you all these years that really just made a positive impact on you? You know, people ask me, where's my favorite place to travel to? And the answer is home, you know. Uh, my bride waiting for me at home uh, across all these years, you know, my, my little nest here. That, that's what it's all about. You know, in the end, uh, we're out there putting our all on the line to protect, you know, 319 Wilmington, you know, to take our little part of the world and try to make it safe, uh, to sustain our nation, to sustain our way of life. And, and when we come back home, when we hug our kids and our grandkids, and that's what it's all about. That's the one that, that's the one cause that we come back to. You know, your, 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 you know, your job will grow and your spouse will still be there. You know, your help will grow and hopefully your spouse will still be there. And, and, and that's the one person in the one place that you look forward to coming back to in the end. 
been a lot of a lot of fun ones, a lot of a lot of amazing people I've had the honor to work with. You know, when when I first started I training Texas Rangers and Special Forces units and SEALs, I thought, who the hell am I to teach these guys? And then I found out something really neat. The more experienced they are, the more they want to hear what you've got to give. It's it, it's crazy, but the hardest class, and I don't love them, I work with them, the hardest class is a group of young academy recruits. You know, they just fresh out of the academy or in the academy. They don't know what they don't know. They don't understand how much they need this information. And and I've had some great groups, you know, Texas Rangers, LAPD SWAT, and it went extraordinarily well. And and I just realized that the that the more experience they have, the more they want what you got to give. And it's almost the opposite. You think, okay, that group of young academy guys, I can blow them away. They're one of the hardest audiences. You know, again, it's rewarding. They're all rewarding. But some of those those elite guys are just so humble and they're so desperate for information that will make them a little bit better, give them a little bit of growth. They're willing to listen to and and, and try everything. And, and then when they ask you back again, oh, it worked. Oh yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be dead. You know, <laughs> they, they put it to the acid. <laughs> you know, the stuff we throw out there gets the acid test every day. Yeah, you know, in these violent times and twenty years of war. If we taught stuff that got people killed, it'd be it'd be done. You know, we'd drop it like a hot rock. But we're we're teaching good stuff. We've got a faith in what we're doing, a faith in what we're teaching. But it all is about coming back home and protecting your little part of the world and protecting your community and your nest and your loved ones. That's what it's about. Amen. Five well, questions. Lieutenant well, Colonel Grossman. Thank you, sir. That was awesome. Colonel, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on and chat with us and be able to share your knowledge with our audience and everything. So we thank you very much. And before we wrap up, where can our listeners find you? Where's the place for that best place for them to uh, get their, get your books? Well, you know, uh, uh, the Amazon author page is in a Colonel Dave Grossman. Just go to one of my books and click on the author. And they're, they're pretty, they do a pretty good job of listing the books there. My website is killology.com, the scholarly study of, of killing. You know, criminology is not about teaching me criminals. Killology is not about teaching people to kill. About understanding the factors that restrain violence in our society. You know, the hard thing to explain is not that one in a million terrible crime. Hard thing to explain is that 99.9% .9 of our citizens for a lifetime never even seriously attempt to take a human life. Explain that. That's killology.com. And it's got my stuff listed there. But most of all, just the author page on Amazon and uh, and uh, some some good information in the books that, uh, that I hope can save some lives and touch some lives. Awesome. We'll make sure we drop the links to those in in the show notes as well. And keep up the fire. We need what you got to give. The world desperately needs what you got to give. You know, in the end, uh, the Bible says that, that, that as as iron sharpens iron, so does one person uplift another. And this is really an iron sharpens iron moment for me, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure and an honor. God bless you. Stay safe. God bless you. Sir. Thank you, sir. Thanks you so as well. Oh.